Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Before we start today's show, I wanted to thank everyone who signed up for our new Politics Guys Insiders program that I mentioned on the show last week. We started to roll out our insiders extras like an exclusive blog, a weekly insiders newsletter, shows and commentary available only to insiders, Politics Guys gear like t-shirts, mugs, and tote bags, and even the opportunity to step into Jay or Trey's shoes and talk politics on the show with me. In fact, after Jay and I finish taping today's show, we'll be recording our very first Insiders-only bonus episode, where we'll talk about some stories we didn't cover here, maybe expand on some things we will be talking about in the episode you're listening to right now, and we'll probably be sharing some of our semi- and non-political thoughts of the week. Now, if you're interested, you can check out the Insiders program at our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash politicsguys or by clicking on the Patreon link at politicsguys.com. Also, we're trying out a newsletter that will come out every Friday that's available to everyone, supporters, insiders, non-insiders, outsiders, you name it. Anyway, in it, you'll get a preview of what we'll be talking about on the show on Sunday, along with my kind of quick takes on the stories. You can see previous newsletters and subscribe at politicsguys.com. With me today for our weekly news analysis show is my co-host, attorney and Republican strategist, Jay Carson. We start today with this week's unveiling of the supposedly new and improved Better Care Reconciliation Act, the Senate health care bill that's intended to, well, I, I, I don't know exactly what it's intended to do aside from to get 50 votes and to gut Medicaid, but Jay and I, I'm sure Jay will talk about that in a minute. Uh, but in an attempt to get those 50 votes, the new bill keeps $231 billion in taxes on high earners that the previous version eliminated, and it adds $115 billion in additional spending, with $45 billion going to combat the opioid crisis and $70 billion going to states as sort of a, in my view, incredibly measly compensation for $772 billion in Medicaid cuts. Now, the legislation also allows insurers to offer low-cost, minimal benefit plans that could be denied to people with pre-existing conditions as long as the insurer offers a more comprehensive plan that can't be denied to people with pre-existing conditions. This is Ted Cruz's uh, brilliant idea. Now, already two Republican senators, Rand Paul and Susan Collins, have announced their opposition, and a number of others are wavering, I think thanks in no small part to opposition from a number of Republican governors in states that accepted the Obamacare Medicaid expansion. So I think that's the more or less the main difference is, Jay, well, what do you think about this latest Senate health care bill? Uh, I, w- I would agree with you that those are the main differences. Um, again, it's it's uh, not perfect. Uh, I don't know if they get 50 votes. The, I, the, the troubling thing to me is, again, you're you're losing Olympia Snow and you're losing Rand Paul. Um, so sort of like uh, pick your poison. Um, uh, someone and I forget who 
said. I mean, the good thing about uh, folks that are not ideologically motivated or uh, uh, are, are moderate so forth is that they can be bought off uh, with with some sort of uh, uh, you know, other, and I don't, I don't mean bought off in any sort of improper or illegal sense. I mean, in just sort of the, the induced the incentivized political horse trading. Sure. Yeah. Uh, incentivized. Uh, uh, and I think Olympia snow, uh, and the moderates might be more in that category, uh, than a Rand Paul who is, uh, you know, whether on the one hand you, you applaud people who stand on principle on the others, uh, they can be a real pain. Other times they can be a real pain in the butt. Um, but I mean, it, it it may be likely that Rand Paul would never vote for for anything uh, that would be uh, unless it's a sort of complete removal of Medicaid and uh, a complete repeal. So, um, I mean, that's the, that's the political thing from from the policy aspect of it. Um, you know, a, a, again, it's addressing Medicaid and 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 uh, your phrase gutting. Well, uh, there's also the view that uh, the Medicaid expansion, the the biggest part of this that that changed under Obamacare was Medicaid, which had previously been a uh, program for uh, the 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 very poor under the poverty line, uh, people with children and children, uh, enable them to get care. And and Obama Care expanded this to healthy, able-bodied uh, people without children. And I think there's a good policy argument to be had of ought those people to be on government assistance, or or could they uh, find something better, especially if the market is fixed. Uh, I think the, the the big challenge through all this, and this is a challenge we've talked about for quite a while, is the the market doesn't fix itself automatically quickly. It will fix itself, uh, but it's going to be incremental. Um, the other good piece, of course, I mean, to, to throw this out in, in the, the wake of all the people walking around with people will die signs, is is there's a four-year horizon uh, in terms of, of these cuts coming in. And as far as the states and Medicaid go, uh, states do have their own taxing authority. Uh, and that might be something that, you know, maybe we start seeing a, a different, a different world, a, a different version of federalism. If there's, uh, I shouldn't say different version of federalism, I should, but more federalism in terms of if states want to spend more to expand their own Medicaid, uh, they'll be able to do so. And they'll, they'll have to do so at the, uh, you know, with, with, whether their citizens will be, be happy with it or not. I think that's, uh, that might be a good thing, um. Uh, philosophically as we, we move forward. But, but no, I mean, I think the biggest, the biggest first, first and foremost question is, can you get 50 votes? Uh, and I don't think they're there yet. Uh, also, uh, the news this morning of, of it's been delayed because of, uh, Senator McCain has, uh, health issues and re- required surgery. Uh, so that's going to be pushed back, um, uh, yet even further. Well, I, Geez, I, I don't even know where to start. Let, let me let me start with the, the the vote issue, because I think on that you and I agree Then I can respond to some of your your, your policy ideas where I think you are uh, uh, impressively wrong. So uh, let's start with the let's start with the vote stuff. Uh, you know, I think in addition to uh, Paul and Collins, you have by my count, six or seven undecided Republicans. You know, there's there's Mike Lee, Jeff Flake, uh, Ohio's own Rob Portman, uh, you know, Dean Heller, Lisa Murkowski, uh, Shelley Moore-Caputo. There, there are a lot of people here who have big problems. And in many cases, these are folks who are from states whose governors it took the Medicaid expansion. And now they're, they're looking at it as certainly their governors are telling them, hey, this is going to really cause us some huge problems and hurt a lot of people in our state. 
And not only that, there are a couple of senators in particular, I'm thinking of of, of Portman and Capito, who are from states that have been hit, you know, Ohio and West Virginia, hit amazingly hard by the opioid crisis. And, you know, a few tens of billions of dollars is just not going to cut it, given the magnitude of this sort of thing. So I think it's going to be incredibly difficult to incentivize all of these people, if that's, you know, the word we're going to use. So I don't, I don't see how this actually, this actually happens. So I think on that, you and I maybe agree, at least without, you know, some significant changes to the legislation. But as for the, uh, as for the policy aspect, you know, the one thing that you hit on that I really want to focus on where I totally disagree, and I think it's fundamental, is your claim that, well, the market will fix itself. Now, in general, I agree with that. Uh, In general, markets tend to self-correct. But there are certain types of markets that don't self-correct. And healthcare is one of those things because healthcare is a different sort of good than most other goods for a lot of reasons we've talked about before in the past. And so I just do not buy this argument that, well, if we just go ahead and deal with some temporary disruption, which, you know, okay, those claims of people being killed might seem a bit overstated, but there's going to be some pretty clear literal pain and suffering in the short run, and it's going to be visited upon the poorest and most vulnerable, even if markets were to correct themselves. But I don't think they will, because I think healthcare is fundamentally different, especially healthcare for the poorest and sickest. And that's where government has a real role. But let me just but, but, but go ahead. I, go ahead. I, I'd interrupt just as a quick rejoinder. I, I, what we're talking about isn't the, the poorest and the sickest would still be covered under Medicaid as they had been uh, for you know decades upon decades. But they wouldn't. Uh, let let me stop is, you there. Let me stop you there. Sort of the the next class up of the the second most you know again able bodied people who uh, might otherwise or should otherwise be able to find uh, able able bodied he- healthy people uh, to be able to find coverage either uh, through an employer. Uh, or through uh, open marketplace as that as that corrects itself. And and again, it's going to be a, a year, several year long process. These changes wouldn't take place immediately. Uh, there would be time for that those market corrections to take place. And, and I think my, my other last rejoinder uh, would be we're not talking about a market for healthcare. We're talking about a market for healthcare and health insurance. And I think that is that is different because that is something that is that can be calculable. It's data driven uh, and you can you can look at utilization and, and figure out how much you need to charge uh, uh, for for that and enable and, and companies want to sell insurance products. Uh, I think, again, there's sort of a misconception on the left that, you know, what insurance companies want to do is just throw everybody off. And that's that's not the case at all. But um, but I'm sorry. Go ahead. I think you're ignoring or glossing over or forgetting about one of the most fundamental changes that Republicans have been opposing. You, you, you are acting or speaking as if Republicans just want Medicaid to go back to what it was pre-Obamacare. That's just simply not the case. What Republicans are proposing is changing the the fundamental nature of Medicare. Now, it, it to to a program that essentially expanded and contracted based upon the number of people who were eligible to it to a set amount block 
grant type of program that would in the end that not only just not just index to uh you know they're saying well not just index to inflation but or sorry medical inflation but to the regular rate of inflation for program growth which is much lower than medical inflation so what this means over time is that medicaid is going to cover fewer and fewer people so it's not the same program that it was before Medi- before obamacare it's not going back to the original vision it's it's changing the fundamental nature of it where fewer people in need will be covered by necessity. That's what's going on. And that's what I think is unconscionable. Unless, unless states are able to uh, realize a greater economy by running it uh, on their own, uh, setting up things like high risk pools and so forth, which have worked in a lot of states uh, and, and, you know, drawing, drawing some of their own economies that way, instead of uh, having it all just uh, federally mandated, I, so, yeah, I mean, again, I'm not going to argue with you that the, the number is, is going to go down, um, but that's that's really, you know, part of the problem. If, if the idea is that we just keep expanding Medicaid uh, indefinitely, it, it's already such a large chunk. It's already such a large chunk of state budgets um, uh, that the, the more steps uh, that government we can take to get government out of, of, of this, of, of decreasing Medicaid rolls, making sure it is only for the the most needy who, who can't get care anywhere else, I think the better off uh, that everyone's going to be, especially actuarially uh, down the road, because it's, it's not going to be sustainable otherwise. Well, you know, even if I accept all of your premises and I accept almost none of them, but let's say I accept all of them in some bizarro world, given the, given the nature, given the, the big nature of this, the major changes that are being proposed and given the supposed conservative belief in uh, the states as laboratories of policy and democracy and so forth, wouldn't it make a lot more sense instead of doing some big federally mandated sort of 50 state solution to try this out as a, to try this out as a, uh, a demonstration program in one or two states, uh, as opposed to just saying, well, let's roll the dice and see what happens with, you know, 200 plus million people. Oh, I, yeah, I, I would guess so. I'm not sure how you craft that legislatively though. Um, and really isn't that, isn't that what we're, we're kind of talking about in that states would be able to sort of do more and make their own uh, guidelines as far as, as Medicaid goes. Um, you know, and again, if states want to add to what they get from the federal government, they're certainly free to do so. Yeah, but but states are being uh, if states they are being draw told different lines about how they, you know. But I mean, under this plan, states are being being told essentially, we are going to give you more freedom, yay! But we are also going to cut you to the bone. So we're gonna. You better hope that your innovation is going to make up for these massive cuts. And I don't know of any healthcare economist that think that that's that's the case or that's very likely to happen. And so, I mean, that's, so it's not like states are being given this wonderful freedom. It's they're being told, you better figure out how to make this work or you're going to have, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands of your residents suffer. Best of luck. That to me just seems, that's not an experiment. That's, well, it's an experiment of some sort, but it's basically the federal government, you know, wiping its hands of it and telling the states, I don't know, they're your citizens, you figure it out. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I guess my, my question is why, why do you think that, why would states not be able to figure it out? Because it's it's it would be like here's something that you know Republicans would would object to. It would be like saying to uh, uh, car companies, you know what? In five years, we want average fleet miles per gallon to be uh, seventy five. Figure it out. Say, well, there you go. That will unleash innovation. Well, that's an unrealistic goal. That's what I'm saying. I mean, so that you know, I I 
Yeah, I just think this is an incredibly, incredibly callous sort of thing. I think it's the federal government just washing its hands and and just pushing this off on the states that are far less able to deal with this sort of thing. And I think it's a travesty. All right. Well, All let's right. let's wait for the final version to come out because okay. I I expect there will be changes, uh, and those changes will be to accommodate uh, if there is a final version. Uh, those changes will be to accommodate uh, moderate senators and senators like uh, Portman from from states that accepted the Medicaid expansion. But I, you know, I, my last you know I would point out this is why a lot of Republicans argued against accepting the Medicaid expansion years ago was was because you then are, are sort of into this into this trap and and there's something deep in in conservative philosophy this is something we, we just don't talk about but uh, every time you get one more person uh, enrolled on some sort of uh, government program uh, that that they then become reliant on you lose a little bit of liberty uh, every time the government takes one more thing of you have to rely on them and you can't rely on uh, something else and, and I think that's that sort of underlies this. I, I don't know that that, that ever comes up uh, again in discussion on the, the media, but it just shows how difficult it is to to change any sort of entitlement program because once it's there, uh, it, it is almost impossible to take away. And you have a, a group of voters uh, who are uh, motivated and uh, in some cases, you know, improperly frightened, I think, uh, out of this. But it's sort of a political saying that uh, if you if you rob from Peter to pay Paul, you can always count on Paul's support. Yeah, well, um, you know, I, and I think yeah. that's sort of what we have. I so. think uh, I'll, my couple of final comments on this is uh, in terms of the liberty argument, I think it's really easy to talk about liberty when you uh, have decent coverage and a good job and that sort of thing. But there are plenty of people who are just trying to figure out how they can pay their medical bills and, and how they can get treatment for some uh, awful diseases. And those things I think are a little more fundamental, but I guess that's just, you know, a difference of, of fundamental values. Uh, one final thing I'll mention is, you know, I agree with you that I think that this won't be the final version that's going to go up for a vote because I think it would fail and that Mitch McConnell still has around the $200 billion slush fund, I guess you could call it. I don't know, maybe it's too negative, but based on the tax cuts they're keeping to kind of get some of these holdouts on board. And I'm sure he's going to try to use that. And now he, after, since he's canceled the first two weeks of the August recess, uh, I think that's going to give him a little more time. So I, I think he's pretty determined to get something up to a vote. But I also don't think that Mitch McConnell will necessarily want to bring something up that he thinks is going to, uh, you know, you know, fail. But but we will we will find out in the in the next uh, in the next couple of weeks. So you know, before we get to our next story, we'd like to thank our newest sponsor, and that is Brooklinen.com. Uh, Jay, let let me ask you something. You. You sleep. I, occasionally, yes. You know, occasionally. Uh, how much would you say you sleep on an average night? I, I probably seven hours. Okay, that's six, seven hours. That's pretty much where I'm around. And you think about that, do the math. It's not hard math. That's around 30 or so percent of your time kind of ensconced in your sheets. I like that word, ensconced for some reason. But, you know, but considering how much time that is, right, and how important sleep is to, I, I don't know, pretty much anything, you know, high quality bedding, it's a smart move. It can make an amazing difference. But, if you've looked at some of the prices for really, you know, fancy schmancy sheets, they're, they really are an investment. Like, you know, you better be a hedge fund manager or something like that for some of these things. And huge markups, uh, markups that can be more than 300%, which is just 
insane. And, and that's where Brooklyn comes in. They're a husband and wife team. They founded their company to give people luxury sheets without the luxury price. Now, I, I have Brooklyn and sheets. I, I love them. They're the best sheets I've ever tried. And if you try them, I think you'll love them too. And brooklinen.com has an exclusive offer just for Politics Guys listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code TPG at brooklinen.com. In fact, they're so confident that you'll love your new sheets that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all their sheets and comforters. So no reason not to give these sheets a try. Now, the only way to get that $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code TPG at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, promo code TPG. Brooklinen, these are the best sheets ever. Okay, you know, moving on, the uh, our second story, uh, well, the, the Trump-Rush intrigue, which deepened this week when it was revealed that during the campaign, Donald Trump Jr. met with a Russian government-connected attorney who promised damaging information about Hillary Clinton. Now, also at the meeting were then-campaign manager Paul Manafort and Trump's son-in-law and top advisor Jared Kushner. And based on the emails that Trump Jr. released before they could be released by the media, it's clear to me, at least, that those at the highest levels of the Trump campaign were not only interested in dealing with a hostile foreign power, but positively eager to do so if it meant damaging the presidential prospects of Hillary Clinton. And by all accounts, the meeting ended with no information of any significant value being given to the campaign. It seems to me that the we've got dirt on Hillary angle may have been a way for the Russians to get a foot in the door to talk about some other things. But but the evasions, the changing stories, and the incredibly difficult-to-believe accounts that the meeting somehow slipped the mind of top Trump officials, well, all of that tells me that they're definitely trying to hide something. And what we know for certain now may even constitute a violation of a federal law, which makes it a crime for any foreigner to contribute or donate money or some other thing of value in connection with an American election or for anyone to solicit a foreigner to do so. So that's kind of my top line take. Jay, what do you think about all this? Um, I would just say, again, this is one of the reasons um, that I would have cautioned and Republicans you know, should have been wary of of Trump uh, for quite a long time because this this comes down to just personal stupidity and bad judgment and and lack of experience. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, at least what I'm seeing, seeing now, what we've heard so far, I... I'm, I'm not. I don't see the, the the legal piece there that this is soliciting a thing of value. Um, there may be evidence that might come come forward later uh, that, that would indicate that. Um, but it, it's just colossally stupid, colossally I guess amateurish. Uh, as someone who's you know look, I've I've been involved in lots of campaigns, none of them at this level presidential, uh, but in every campaign. This happens. You, you you get you get these phone calls or emails or, or some sort of uh, communication from somebody who who's got an angle and hey they know everything and hey hey I can hook you up and the, and, and there is this sort of sort of class of of uh, I don't know what what you you'd call it uh, political uh, uh, um, oh the word the word escapes me right now um, uh, but profiteers I guess okay is, is, is yeah the I like best that word, word. Uh, you know That's and again I'm, I'm not saying. There are there are other kind of political profiteers, the, the consultants and campaign folks and all that who, who make tons and tons of money off this. Uh, but I, I mean, people who are, are are looking for an angle or are looking to get in their foot in the door. Um, sometimes it's to impress some other client that they have. Uh, say, hey, I can get you a meeting with so and so, and and they're getting paid that way. 
Um, other times it, it is just a, a weird celebrity seeking kind of thing. And, you know, there's, there's sort of an instinctiveness that your instinct that you, you get about, Hey, we need to steer clear of these guys. Um, and, and especially if it's coming from, you know, Russian channels. Um, so I, I think this is just colossally stupid. Um, again, I, I don't know there's a violation there, but what it guarantees is that there's, there's more digging. There's, there's something to dig for. And the, the story of, look, there's nothing to see her move on. Uh, that's, that, uh, is, as uh, the Nixon administration said is, is no longer operative. So, yeah. yeah, you know, I think you're right that even if you want to look at this, if you're a reasonable person who wants to look at this in the most positive light, I think your take on it, kind of a bunch of amateurs who didn't realize what they were doing was really, really wrong and, you know, possibly illegal. That remains to be seen. But, you know, I've heard some other people say, well, they were really idiots for putting all this in email. But then again, I think, you know, a lot of people want that kind of CYA paper trail just in case things go south. Uh, but, but it seems to me that if you have any sense at all, somebody contacts you like that, the first thing you do is you you get on the line to the FBI and you say, hey, we were contacted by this person who says the Russian government wants to give our campaign information about our opponent. You know, that that is the smart thing to do. Um, now, of course, the most negative light is that they knew this was wrong, but they somehow assumed that they wouldn't get caught, which is, wow, pretty bizarrely stupid. Um, and, you know, and maybe I don't, people are, people have amazing capacity for self-delusion. And I was saying, you know, maybe, uh, uh, Kushner and Trump Jr. are so deluded that they, they thought, well, you know, this isn't unethical or illegal. It's just, you know, even our patriotic duty to ensure that Hillary Clinton not win the presidency. And wouldn't that be better for everyone? And I, people actually think that way. Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah. I can't imagine what was going on in the head of Donald Trump Jr., but, Wow, this is why you don't want amateurs with no real prior experience in elective office to be not just, I would say, you know, uh, members of Congress, but 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 running the country. Talk about a bad idea. And this is just another example of that. So I don't know where it goes for this, but certainly, you know, uh, Bob Mueller's team's going to be looking at that and he's got a heck of a team. And uh, the Trump the Trump folks brought this all on themselves and they, they deserve whatever's coming down the pike for this kind of colossal stupidity. Well, I, you know, I would point out also the other thing that, that and I, I guess I understand the instinct not to have done this back then, but um, would, would have been this this could have all been dealt with way back in, uh, you know, December, uh, release these emails and, and say, Oh, Russians. Oh yeah. We, you know, again, we had a couple of these, these kooks said they had something and we didn't know what they're talking about. Uh, we sent some guys to go to a meeting, nothing came of it. And, and that's that, um, as opposed to now, uh, where after there have been multiple denials by Trump jr. Uh, and Trump senior, uh, that, you know, there were no Russian connections. Um, it just it just really hurts their credibility and is going to encourage uh, those who are digging to dig further. You know, and to be fair, we've seen this on a sort of a bipartisan basis throughout history. Certainly, there are an awful lot of smart people whose first instinct when they have something like this is to uh, evade, cover up, deny. And for a lot of folks, that's just like I said, even very smart folks, that becomes an issue. Uh, so you could even point to the Bill Clinton uh, various, you know, scandals and, and so forth. And you certainly could see a lot of that in that White House. And so this isn't unique to the Trump White House. But in a way, Trump, like in so many other things, has taken this to a different sort of level, I think, in part because 
I think he may be uniquely paranoid. Uh, he's uniquely maybe clannish with wanting to just surround themselves with loyalists and family members and so forth. So like what well, I said, with so many other things, Trump takes a bad thing and can make it even worse with his own unique talents for doing so, I think. So, all right. Um, before we move on, we'd like to welcome our newest Politics Guys insiders. Uh, thanks for signing up for the program. It's, uh, we have uh, Kristen from the Policy Scout, Dylan, Kat, Patrick, and Bruce. And hey, if you're interested in joining them and getting exclusive insiders content and updates, you can learn more and sign up by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politicsguys or by clicking on the Patreon link at politicsguys.com. All right, moving on to our next story. You know, Jay, the Senate health bill and the Trump Jr. Russia thing were such a huge focus of the media this week that you might think that nothing else happened, but really there were a number of other noteworthy stories like this, like the Senate confirmation hearing for Christopher Wray, who's President Trump's nominee to lead the FBI. And on the same day that President Trump characterized the Russia investigation as once again a witch hunt, I think he called it the biggest witch hunt in political history, suggesting that you know, President Trump doesn't have much of a sense of political history, that, that aside, uh, Christopher Wray publicly disagreed and, and told senators that the president had not asked him to pledge loyalty, that he wouldn't pledge loyalty if asked and that he'd resign as FBI director before carrying out any request of the president that he deemed illegal. Well, so, those, those are all the right answers. You know, exactly. So <laughs> I, I, that's what I was going to ask, you know, what, what you thought about his testimony and what do you think his prospects for confirmation are? Well, I think his prospects for confirmation are good. I, I think they always were. There hasn't really been much uh, really pushback against him. He's a, a career, uh, you know, Justice Department government lawyer uh, guy. He's He has the right background for the job. Uh, you know, my sense is he's he's uh, respected on, on both sides of the aisle. So I, I don't see um, an actual holdup in his confirmation. Now, there there's, of course, going to be these, you know, statements where they, you know, want to take shots at uh, at Trump along the way. And that's just kind of par for the course. Uh, but I think he handled all the questions correctly. Um, you know, and again, maybe to the embarrassment of some of the things that, that uh, the, the administration uh, continues to, to put out. Uh, but I think I think he'll get through. And uh, again, I, I think he'll be fine. I don't believe there's any concern that he's going to somehow soft pedal or nor, nor could he really, uh, you know, what uh, what Comey's doing or or, you know, hold back on something. So, yeah, I, I agree with you entirely. And you know, one of the reasons I wanted to, to bring this up is uh, not just that there could be something you and I agree on uh, this week, but, but also because, you know, I am not reflexively anti Donald Trump just because Trump proposes somebody or really? something now, you know, and, and I think <laughs> it's important to judge all of the president's actions on their individual merits. And here, while I, I think that firing uh, Director Comey was a really bad idea for a lot of reasons we've talked about, this is this is a nomination that I think is a good, solid, reasonable nomination. Uh, I, I get the sense from what I've seen, kind of the pattern I've seen is the further away Donald Trump is from actually making any decision, the better decision of his administration it is, which isn't necessarily really what you want with your president. You want to say, well, how can we involve the, the boss as little as possible so we can have better decisions made? That's not good. A second thing I'll point out well, is, you know, and I think, I think, oh, go ahead. Well, no, go ahead before go I ahead. get to my second thing, really. No, I was, I was going to say, I, I think that's right. And, and that the, the unfortunate um, standard, the way it seems to work is uh, Trump does something, it gets completely screwed up uh, and then someone else, uh, presumably like a, a Reince Priebus or some, someone else uh, 
uh, sort of takes charge, uh, and then they they get it right the second time. Uh, that was the the case with uh, Michael Flynn, I think. Um, uh, and then the the second uh, having McMaster uh, replace him, um, you took someone who was sort of a polarizing, controversial, and and again sort of strange character, um, and and uh, then fixed it secondly. And this time it was Comey who. Uh, the president sort of bungled uh, this whole getting rid of Comey, uh, uh, and uh, and now it, it is sort of you know what what can be done to fix it is is being done. Yeah, exactly. So. And this comes back to I think uh, a, a fundamental uh, characteristic of the Trump presidency is he's an amateur who's surrounded himself with amateurs, and that's. That's exactly what you, regardless of what you think about his policies, and I think most of them are are, are awful, and I, I, I thank God on many occasions that he's not a, a seasoned, smart professional, because a lot more of this stuff would be happening, but it's not good for anyone when you have someone who doesn't know what he's doing and doesn't care to learn and who surrounds himself with people who don't know what they're doing. That's a recipe for just awfulness. And we've seen more awfulness in this first, I don't know how many months of the Trump presidency than in, I think in any presidency in quite a long time. So, uh, you know, moving on, I, I think, uh, uh, unless you have anything else to say about the FBI director nomination, Jay? No, I don't oh, think so. I, I, I wish him well, and I expect he'll be confirmed uh, in uh, short order. Yeah, me too. Well, it might be a little longer than short order just because the Senate is so backed up between health care and, you know, everything else. And but, but anyway, it'll be, you know, I think he fired Comey. And, you know, it, it'll be probably about three months the FBI at least will be without a director. And that's obviously not the kind of thing that you want. Again, amateurs. Okay. Also this week, my favorite government regulatory agency, you know, the one, Jay, what is it? <laughs> I know it is the uh, uh, consumer, whatchamacallit, uh, led by former attorney general and uh, uh, five-time Jeopardy champion, Rich Cordray. That's right. The consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CF. PB. I should get like a T-shirt because I love them. love those guys so much. Anyway, they finalized. They sell them. You could probably get one. I, I can make one. You know. Anyway, they finalized a rule prohibiting financial institutions from requiring that new customers agree to arbitration as the only method of resolving disputes. Now, this to me is very welcome and a very consumer-friendly development, as these arbitration clauses have been buried in the fine print of more and more agreements between consumers and big corporations. You know, they're, they're sold as a more efficient way to resolve disputes, but the truth, well, yeah, they're efficient for the corporations. The truth is, is that these agreements mean that, for instance, let's say your bank's been overcharging you by say 10 bucks a month. Thanks to these clauses, you can't be part of a class action lawsuit against the bank, but you'd instead have to go up against the bank yourself in arbitration. And that's almost always far too intimidating and confusing to most people, which means they lose a little bit and the company ripping them off gets to keep all the gains from, it could be hundreds, could be hundreds of thousands, could be millions of similar overcharges or other dishonest conduct. And there's no incentive for them not to do more stuff like that. So it's a great win. It's a great efficiency for businesses, certainly, but for average consumers, it's awful. And I'm so glad that at least in the financial sector, the CFPB is finally doing something about it. Jay, uh, I'm guessing you don't see eye to eye, to eye uh, with me on this one, right? Uh, sigh. Again, I'll, I'll send you my my uh, uh, daily newsletter I get from the American Arbitration Association. Uh, but uh, look, arbitration is something that is typically opposed by the plaintiff's bar because it prevents them from getting the big jackpot uh, that they would like to get. Uh, for example, when you've got a case, as Juba said, banks ripping them off five, ten bucks a month. 
that would over the course of a year mean someone lost, uh, uh, you know, a couple hundred bucks. Um, uh, and what they would still, the consumer, what the consumer probably still ends up with is probably that, that couple hundred bucks back, if that, uh, out of a class action. But the uh, plaintiff's bar comes out uh, way ahead getting fees for this um, and uh, a substantial chunk of the award. So that's, to me, and that's it, it, this is sort of a traditional democratic sop to the plaintiff's bar. Uh, arbitration is uh, really, I would say, as consumer friendly, if not more consumer friendly, uh, than going to court, uh, and, and you, you actually get to, um, okay. make your case. The idea behind arbitration yep. is that it's cheaper, uh, and more efficient. Let, and I, I would say it is. Let, let's put so, aside, let, let's put aside that, that the plane, the, the, the lobbyists on both sides of it. That's, I was just wondering if you could maybe address kind of my concern, which I feel is a reasonable concern. And, and this is backed up by some data suggesting that very few people actually bother with, arbitration and, and you know you you know might be just a few bucks here and there and in most cases in a lot of cases certainly someone will bring it to the attention of the company in their individual case the company might make some sort of adjustment and make it right and so forth but even if i accept all that and i don't necessarily there's a concern about what incentive is there for the company to be careful about this what incentive is there for them for not for them to not engage in similar bad behavior. Isn't that what, you know, punitive damages are, are, are all about? I mean, we want to have some kind of mechanism so that companies feel like, well, you know what, if this is a little bit of a problem, if anyone complains about it, eh, we'll work it out. But if not, it could be a real cash cow for us. Well, first of all, out and out fraud is, uh, is illegal. There's that. Uh, there is the pressure of should these this these stories come out in the press, which they inevitably do. Uh, banks are uh, financial institutions are incredibly sensitive to things like uh, public perception and how that affects their stock price. Uh, you know, Wells Fargo, for example, uh, you know, took a, a huge hit after it came out that there were uh, folks, you know, farther down the, the road, sort of sub managers to assistant managers. Uh, who were creating these false accounts to sort of churn uh, activity and and get uh, make money that way, um, and you you get CEOs called on the carpet in front of Congress and, and all of that. So there there's a lot of disincentives uh, besides a class action that are out there. Um, you know, there's there's whistleblower suits if someone uh, you know calls them on this and is let go. Um, there's there are plenty of other remedies and. Um, again, my, 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 my point is, is if you are upset with your bank, then, uh, is, tell them to make it right. If they don't make it right, get a new bank. Okay. A, a comment and a question, I guess. First, my comment is I think these things like the Wells Fargo story, they're like cockroaches. If you see one, there are a hundred that you don't see. I totally disagree with the fact that these things inevitably come out. I think the vast majority of them don't come out. But the, the question I guess I have for you, Jay, is do you see any circumstances under which class action lawsuits are, are okay? Or do you just think they should just not be allowed ever under any circumstances? I'm thinking. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, no, I, they, they should, should certainly should be allowed. And there are numerous statutes that do allow them. 
Um, uh, and there are certain criteria that you have to get get passed uh, under the, the federal rules of civil procedure or, or various state rules, depending on whether you bring state and federal court, um, to to show that you are you have a class and you actually represent the class, uh, and there's a commonality of interest uh, upon, among members of the class and so forth. Um, so no, I'm not opposed to them entirely, uh, uh, but the the idea is also that uh, companies can contract for for rights and, and rights and, and how to settle disputes. Sure. Uh, and this is one way, one way to do it. Okay. L- let me, um, let me ask you just kind of one, you know, if there's, if there's a, if there's a bank out there that wants to say, Hey, you know what? Um, we're fine. And, and I guess the other, the other piece of this is look, class actions. It's, I think you and I come at this from different perspectives, uh, because I've, I've been in the position of defending, uh, against class. I'm not, I don't know. I'm trying to think if I ever brought any class actions, probably not most, mostly defense. Um, but there, there are plenty of, of cases out there where you find a big fish, you find something that may or may not be a problem, uh, and you can you can push it and you can uh, you, you you get some money just by by shaking them down. Um, that happens, and uh, um, that's what what uh, corporations look at. And banks are very big fish, so they're very concerned about about being shaken down. Uh, and you know, I, I get that. So, I mean, I understand where you're coming from with the justice, uh, piece of this and, uh, shouldn't they be made to, uh, made to pay? Um, uh, but, but I, 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 what I'm saying is, is there, there are a lot of good reasons why banks would, would choose arbitration. Um, and, uh, you know, again, the publicity for things that perhaps they didn't, uh, do wrong. Right. Um, and no, and, and so. I think, I think, you know, I don't entirely disagree with, with all those points. I think you make some important points and it's not all, you know, kind of one way in that sense. The, the one concern that I have is in a, in an ideal system, uh, consumers would have a choice, you know, number one, they would know what they're signing up for, but honestly, Nobody reads the fine print thing. And even if they did, in many of these cases, it's not like they have another option. And this just isn't about now with banks, there might be a few more options. But the point is, is if all the companies in a sector sort of collude in a way to make sure that there's not this option for consumers, consumers are effectively stuck. And, and that's and that's the problem. To me, it's an example of, of uh, market participants or, or providers of services essentially colluding to hurt the consumer to, to benefit themselves. And that's a case of what I would consider a market failure where government does have a role to step in. I know you- well, there's, there's- Sort of, sort of what you're kind of arguing for is is what's called in the law a, a contract of adhesion, uh, which is sort of a, a contract where the power involved between the, the two participants is so imbalanced that the one side can sort of dictate its terms. Exactly. Um, contracts of adhesion are, are unenforceable as a matter of law, as a matter of public policy. But uh, an arbitration clause is not necessarily you know, just because something contains an arbitration clause doesn't make it a contract of adhesion. Uh, there still would, would be that argument, I, I suppose, out there. But uh, I, I get what you're saying that, that look, what are your choices? Because most all the big banks and they, we have so many big banks now that's, they've kind of swallowed up small banks. That's where we are. Um, if I, but you know, look on the other hand, if, if I'm a lawyer for a bank uh, and they say, Hey, you think we should put an arbitration clause or not? Sure. Uh, I would be, I would be committing malpractice if I told them not yeah. to. No, and, and I certainly understand. I'm not, 
I mean, that's their, that's their job to look out for the interests of their company and their company's shareholders. And I get that. And to me, it's another, it's one of these examples of where there's such a huge imbalance of, of knowledge and power and resources, you know, which you have the individual consumer who knows almost nothing of this against a large corporation that's working as hard as it can to extract as much revenue as it can out of that consumer, understandably so there's a huge informational disadvantage. And again, you and I, I think both recognize that to a certain extent, but we just look at different sort of mechanisms by which that can perhaps be most fruitfully addressed, I would say. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Well, it's- And, t- and, the, and the, in the, uh, uh, the uh, CP, I can't even bring myself to say the initials. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get you that t-shirt. Uh, issue with, with that agency is- uh, uh, how it was created and, and, uh, right. Uh, Republicans so don't like that. that but that's a separate topic from what it does. Yeah, but. yeah, definitely. Um, all right, well, it's time for what we're reading where we step back from the crazy pace of the news cycle and talk about the more in-depth, thoughtful things we're reading, listening to, or watching. Uh, Jay, do you want to start? Or would you like me to start? Okay. Well, this week I am recommending of all things, an article in a high school newspaper, um, Weird story. I don't know if uh, some listeners might have heard of it. Student reporters from Mercer Island High School in Washington State got a phone number for Secretary of Defense James Mattis. And so, you know, they got in touch with them and asked for an interview. Uh, Mattis said, sure, <laughs> amazingly. And so they had this huge story. Now, I read the transcript and it was full of really interesting stuff. Um, there are two comments from Mattis particularly that I wanted to share, uh, if you don't mind, Jay. The first one was from early interview when Mattis says, I get very concerned when I hear people start characterizing their opponents as stupid. I still understand that because politics is a little rough and tumble at times, but I don't buy it. And when they start calling each other crazy or evil, well, you and I, we don't compromise with crazy people or evil people. And so I don't think that's helpful. Generally speaking, just because someone disagrees with you doesn't make them crazy or evil. So that's the Good. first step. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what we're all about here, right, Jay? So I thought- and This was from a guy they called Mad Dog. Exactly. So I read that and I was like, yes, you know, this kind of helped to sort of uh, strengthen a view of, of, of Mattis that I've had for a while. And, you know, I, I a few weeks ago in the show, I suggested this New Yorker profile of him that kind of painted him as a very good guy and that sort of thing. This is really good. And then, kind of interestingly, later on in the interview, uh, Mattis says this, Most American families are very generous unless they've lived in places where they've adopted a kind of selfish style. But that's only a few pockets of the country that really have that bad. Although they're big pockets in terms of population, most of the country is not like that. So, so apparently, it's not good. To, well, it's not good to characterize people who disagree with you as crazy or evil, but calling them selfish instead of assuming that maybe people who I don't know live in large urban areas, especially on the coast, aren't actually more selfish, but simply see the world differently than you do or care about different things. Well, 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 that's okay. And for what it's worth, as best as I can tell. Mattis hasn't actually ever actually lived with all those selfish people in any major urban area for an extended period of time. But, but, but there well, you go. He's been was, in Washington, right? Well, for, you know, here and Washington's its own special little weird kind of bubble and that sort of thing. But anyway, the interview with the whole interview is definitely well worth reading and I highly recommend it. And as always, we'll have a link to it on our website for this episode, politicsguys.com. You can check it out. Jay, you have anything for this week? All right. Now, my my pick is going to be something. It's, this is weird and obscure, and I'm not even sure uh, it's still in print. But I was on vacation last week, um, uh, again, in uh, out in, in real America, uh, Mike, not those pockets of selfishness. 
um, but uh, on the Lake Michigan shore. So I was I reread a book that I had read 25 some years ago, uh, and that is uh, Bill Buckley's. Uh, the end of the affair. Uh, now, uh, William F. Buckley, as a lot of you know, is is a hero of mine for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, one of the one of them is that we share an interest in sailing, uh, and he's written uh, four books on these these sailing trips he's taken, transatlantic uh, uh, voyages. And so it's not for every everybody. It's it's a little heavy on the sailing. Uh, stuff, but it's absolutely fascinating look into uh, uh, Buckley and and how he thinks. It's sort of almost his his sea journal of of what happens and these these you know fascinating people he brings with him and sort of this fascinating lifestyle that you kind of get a glimpse as to how the the other half or the other one uh, percent might live. Um, but but there's also just a a real humanity there in in terms of. Um, I, I'm trying to put the, the best way to, to phrase this conservatism. A lot of times it's not even so much a political philosophy, uh, but maybe it's just a view of, of how you live your life. And, and, uh, he, he, uh, really expresses it well, uh, in this, uh, and, and in terms of even just what, you know, he does for leisure activity, uh, someone who had been, you know, this incredibly busy person has done so much more in, you know, probably two years of his life than, than, uh, either of us will accomplish, uh, in the entirety um, but he would, you know, in his spare time, he would undertake a transatlantic voyage. And at this point he was, uh, in his uh, early sixties. Um, it's, it's just, just really fascinating. There's sort of a, a love of life in it. Uh, and, uh, uh, again, it's sort of littered with, with other political, uh, uh, philosophy and little pieces. And it also, it's funny, this book came out in, uh, 1990, 1991, I think. Uh, so it's fascinating just to see how far, uh, We've come uh, in terms of, of our political situation, uh, technology, and there's sort of this view of how life was just before the internet. Um, and, and Buckley, who is very much into technology and gadgets, is is very excited about a, his navigational aid uh, for for boats that are sort of just coming on the market that will run you about ten grand. Uh, uh, you know, that would give you your accurate position on the chart and and show everything. And I now have an app on my phone that I bought for five bucks that does the same thing. Um, so, I mean, just that is, 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 uh, fascinating that the lack of communication and how they have to use, you know, satellite, uh, uh, telephones, uh, to communicate. Um, but if, if you're all at all interested in William F. Buckley, uh, or, or sailing or, uh, that sort of thing, I highly recommend, uh, any of his sailing books, um, end of the affair, racing through paradise, Atlantic high, um, and again, I'm not sure you can maybe find them on Amazon. Uh, I found this in a used bookstore in uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio, of all places, which is the home of former Antioch College. Um, uh, as Mike, as you may know, which was sort of farther to the left than even a lot of uh, most of academia. Um, so I always had mixed feelings about, you know, again, I, on the one hand, I, I, you know, would would Mr. Buckley have been uh, happy being in uh, uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio? Um, uh, you know, so maybe I did did the right thing in buying the book from that bookstore. But on the other hand, perhaps the residents of Yellow Springs uh, needed it more than I did. But uh, regardless, uh, fun, fun beach reading. All right. Well, you know, uh, you, you're right. I certainly uh, agree that uh, uh, Bill Buckley was a, a fascinating, a fascinating guy. And that kind of I'll throw in one other recommendation. There's a documentary that came out, I think, a year or two ago called, I believe, Best of Enemies. That uh, Best of Enemies chronicles yes. the uh, the William F. Buckley Gore Vidal debates. It's uh, it's a really interesting thing, and I would I would recommend that too. And I'll find a link for that and throw it up on the site. So there you go. All right. And it's also I, I watched that documentary too, and and it's it is that's wonderful too. And it, it's again what what passed for sort of debate even then is 
uh, is sort of funny. Uh, looking back on that, it, uh, from again, 40 years vantage point now, 45, no, I'm almost 50 years now, 50, 45 yeah. years. Yeah, no. All right. Well, that's it for this yep. episode. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you like what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsor, Brooklyn, my new favorite sheets. Politics Guys listeners get $20 off and free shipping by using our promo code TPG at brooklinen.com. We also hope you'll consider joining our new Politics Guys Insiders program, where supporting the show financially comes with exclusive extras like special updates, more commentary, additional episodes, and lots more. You can check it up and sign up at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash politicsguys, or go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. And hey, if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes is also a big help. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. The show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.